Hello, this is Annette Windhorn, the coordinator of the OAH Distinguished Lectureship Program. During the sesquicentennial years of the Civil War, the Organization of American Historians is committed to bringing the best current thinking on this complex era to a wide audience. We aim to explore the war from its beginnings through its aftermath, and as part of this goal, the OAH is pleased to offer a series of podcast conversations with distinguished historians. We started out in 2011 by focusing on the origins of the conflict, and in 2012, we turn our attention to mobilizing for war. In this podcast, we feature Dr. Spencer Crew. Dr. Crew has worked in public history institutions for more than 25 years, serving as the director of the Smithsonian Institution's National Museum of American History and as the president of the National Underground Railroad Freedom Center. He's currently the Clarence J. Robinson Professor of American, African American, and Public History at George Mason University. Welcome to the podcast, Spencer. Thank you, Annette. I'm, I'm excited to be a part of this. You write and speak extensively on African American and public history, and today we'd like to hear specifically about your work on the Underground Railroad. To begin, could you tell us a little bit about this network and about the people involved in it? Well, I think the Underground Railroad is one of the most fascinating activities to examine in the history of this country. It's interesting because it really is a coming together of a variety of individuals, free and unfree, in different parts of the country from different perspectives, who essentially are looking at the institution of slavery and see it as not fitting with the principles and the ideals of this nation. And it's not something this nation should condone nor support. So essentially, those who are part of the Underground Railroad are individuals who are seeking their freedom from, from uh, slavery, but also others who are willing to go against the laws, to go against the common beliefs of the time period that slavery is an acceptable part of the human condition, and to take steps to really begin to combat that, to help those who are escaping to escape themselves and to try to find ways to give these individuals freedom. I think what we would suggest is that they are saying that the principles that we have in our major documents, like the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, talk about these ideas of liberty and freedom and equality, and that it's important that these things are given to all members of society, not just to a chosen few. So believing this, they really step forward to create this network of individuals who are looking to help essentially undermine the institution of slavery and help the enslaved gain their freedom. Can you talk a little bit more about specific individuals? I think we all know Harriet Tubman, who is such a, a wonderful representative of an enslaved person who continued to work in the network to, to free other people and help other people gain their freedom. Could you tell us some more about her and, and other folks who were involved in the network? Certainly. Certainly Harriet Tubman is the best-known individual connected to the Underground Railroad, famous because of the fact that she grew up enslaved, but then gained her own freedom, and then went back to help others, people who are part of her family and friends, to gain their freedom uh, afterwards. And she becomes sort of a celebrity during the period in terms of her courage and her dedication to the system and her connections to others. And in fact, it's important to understand that there were others that she worked with very closely who helped her in her success. Among them are people like William Still, who is in many ways one of the more important parts of the Underground Railroad in the northern part of that activity. He's an African-American who uh, lives in Philadelphia. His parents were uh, uh, enslaved individuals who gained their freedom. 
And he dedicates his life to helping others who are escaping to uh, get on to freedom. And what's amazing about him is he actually uh, records the stories of those individuals as they come through Philadelphia and then writes a book about it. And his book is one of the few times in which we have the actual stories of the individuals who are escaping written down. Now, also part of that network are people like uh, Thomas Garrett, who is in Delaware, a Quaker, who also is dedicated to helping those escape going northward. He's a close companion and supporter of Harriet Tubman, and he himself is put on trial for helping uh, uh, escaped slaves gain their freedom and is actually found guilty and fined a hefty sum uh, for being part of that network. But what's amazing about him is that he, at the end of the trial, steps forward and says, I consider this fine a license for me to continue my work. And so if anyone knows of another runaway who needs help, send him to Thomas Garrett. So you have people like that who are important parts of the, of the organization. And probably the other person to keep in mind is Levi Coffin, who's very well known in Ohio and Indiana, himself also a Quaker who uh, grows up in the Carolinas, but then moves to Ohio and spends several decades actively helping those who are escaping to go, go forward and move uh, northward to either northern parts of the United States or on to Canada. So you have a number of individuals like that, both black and white, of different religious backgrounds who are actively involved in making this Underground Railroad successful. And I guess the other person we shouldn't leave out is Frederick Douglass, who, like Harriet Tubman, began his life as an enslaved individual, escaped to freedom, and then is very active in upstate New York and helping uh, those who are escaping to connect to him and then get them on to uh, Canada. But even more importantly, he becomes a very active and articulate and forceful spokesperson for resisting slavery and finding ways to make an institution come to an end. What inspiring individuals. Is there something particular about Quakerism that, that seems to ignite the, the desire to help uh, enslaved people seek their freedom? You, you just mentioned a couple Quakers. I know Quakers were very, very integral in this, in this network. But I think you've also uh, talked about being a Quaker doesn't ne necessarily mean that you were an abolitionist or an Underground Railroad supporter. A absolutely not. But I, I think what is uh, key for Quakers is their belief, in essence, that the light of God is in everyone. So that means that everyone has the right to salvation. And everyone deserves to be treated in a fair manner. And so what this does is it makes it difficult for them through their religion to condone slavery. Now, there are certainly those individuals who overlook that for economic reasons, but you could argue that a large portion of the Quaker population during that period really was opposed to the institution of slavery. And they very early on began to pass resolutions in which they put pressure on those of their members who owned slaves to get rid of them and finally began to kick them out of the Quaker meeting places. Uh, if they continue to have slaves. So that there is a sentiment in that organization, in that religion, which is opposed to the idea of enslaving others. Now, what's interesting is that there are, uh, also is a belief there that they shouldn't get actively engaged in sort of the matters of that local government, that they don't want to participate a lot in local government. So that there's a tension there between those who are opposed to slavery but believe we should not get involved and others who are opposed to slavery and Quakers and decide that we need to get involved and to take steps to help those who want freedom to gain that freedom. 
And that's where the interesting, I think, evolution takes place. We have people like Garrett and uh, Levi Coffin and others who take their Quakerism one step further and actually decide that what we need to do is not just to be opposed to this, but to actively find ways to help those who are trying to gain their freedom get that freedom. That's why you see so many Quaker names, I think, popping up. It's because of their decision to take this next step forward, and also because they're a tight-knit community in terms of underground railroad networks, it begins to give them people they know who are part of the community who might be willing to help them and move runaways on to the next place. So there is this sort of network among the Quaker community that's helpful in terms of the operation of the underground railroad system. Wow. That, what an inspiring uh, group of people or, or uh, ideology that helped them work on this. Now, I, let me add that, that they are, but I, I think we want to be sure to understand that they're not the only ones for whom their religion pushes them in the, that direction. Absolutely. So the same pushes into Methodists, the Baptists, and others, so that um, while the Quakers often come to the forefront, I want to make sure we're not overlooking the fact that you have others of different religious backgrounds who are also uh, pushed by their belief in God and their, their religion to get active in helping others gain their freedom. And what about African-American communities, either freed communities in, in the border states or in, in, um, outside the South, as well as enslaved communities in the South? How were they active in the network? Uh, free African-American communities, especially in the North, are key locations for people who are escaping from slavery to go. And it emerges out of the fact that these communities are composed of individuals who either themselves might have been uh, runaways from the institution of slavery, individuals who might still have family members who are in, in, enslaved in the South, or p uh, individuals who just recognize how unfair it is to have people like them deprived of the fruits of their labor and put in a condition where they are subject to violence and mistreatment. So that the African-American community becomes an important locus for underground railroad activities. And within that community, you can often look to black churches as key institutions because it is there that uh, people can get together, they can have discussions about these issues, and they can sort of bring resources to help those who are escaping to move forward. What we have to keep in mind is that it's an expensive proposition to be involved in the Underground Railroad on a regular basis, because often those who are escaping slavery come with very little in terms of material uh, goods with them. Often they have just the clothes that they had on their backs, maybe sometimes not even shoes. They would wind up there very hungry and uh, in need of uh, food and other kinds of things, so that Creating an, a, a backlog of materials to give the runaways is a very challenging task. So that uh, a part of why the churches are so important is because they can begin to bring people together who can pool their resources to help those who are trying to escape. Now, you've talked about William Still writing a book about his experiences and, and the people that he assisted and also about Frederick Douglass being a public speaker and, and really encouraging support for the Underground Railroad. When you think about the Underground Railroad, sometimes you think of it as being a secretive organization, but actually it sounds like it was very well publicized. Could, could you speak a little bit about how this publicity really happened and what kind of impact it had on the operations of the network? Absolutely. I, I think there's sort of a two-edged sword when you talk about the Underground Railroad and how it operates and how public or not public that it was. 
I think there is a one side of the operation in which it is very quiet and very secretive, and that is how it specifically operates in different regions of the country. I mean, what's critical for success is to keep that information as close to the vest as possible. So that's difficult for those who are trying to uh, capture or runaways, who are trying to figure out who are part of that system to infiltrate it and then to either arrest or uh, sometimes even attack those individuals who are part of it. So there's a side of the Underground Railroad that is very quiet and very closely kept so that the participants don't find themselves exposed to the law or to attacks by slave catchers. So that that's one half of it. But the other half of it is that there is a very explicit uh, effort to publicize the existence of the Underground Railroad and to publicize uh, spectacular successes or activities that illustrate that it is working successfully and have an impact upon slavery. Because part of the idea is that what those who are involved in the Underground Railroad want to do is to create a sense of unease for the people who own slaves uh, in the South and other parts of the country. What they want to begin to illustrate is that, one, when slaveholders say that slaves are content and happy in their condition, that when you talk about and can show people who've run away and who speak to that issue, it sort of counters that point of view. The other part of it is that as uh, people are, are, are running away and doing this successfully, it offers hope and illustrations of alternatives to those who were enslaved. Because if you hear about a Harriet Tubman, if you hear about a Frederick Douglass, if you hear about uh, a William Wells Brown or Henry Box Brown or the uh, Crafts speaking about their escape, it, that word filters down. And I think those who are enslaved, if they hear about that, begin to realize that there are other possibilities for their lives. I think Frederick Douglass, when he is uh, still enslaved and goes to Baltimore, says he's stunned when he gets to Baltimore and begins to encounter people who are on the docks of Baltimore who are actually opposed to the institution of slavery. And when they talk to him, talk about how terrible slavery is. He said it dawned on him for the first time that there were actually people who were white who didn't believe in slavery. And I think that changed his worldview. And I think that's also what publicizing the Underground Railroad is meant to do. It's meant to begin to try to change the worldview of those who are enslaved but maybe also influence uh, individuals in the North who are white, who are hearing one thing about slavery from slaveholders, but are now beginning to see that, in fact, the stories that they're hearing are not necessarily true nor accurate. So that this uh, secretive nature of the Underground Railroad does go in both directions. And it's sort of, uh, part of it is to keep it in the day-to-day -day operations very close to the vest but to also publicize successes and key individuals so that there's this sense that there is a movement underfoot, a successful movement underfoot, to undermine and attack the institution of slavery and to get others to maybe agree to join them in that effort. And how did this publicity also contribute to the political debate about secession or about lawmaking regarding enslaved people. Our podcasts in this past year have been talking a lot about the origins of the Civil War, and mm -hmm. there are folks that would see the Underground Railroad certainly as a, a, an or, origin point or a cause of the war. How did, how did that work? Well, I think the way to, to uh, consider that issue is to look at the Compromise of 1850 as a place of starting. And one key aspect of that Compromise of 1850 is the creation of the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850, which is a reinforcement of earlier Fugitive Slave Laws, the one of 1793. 
And I think what you see here is there is a growing concern in the South about activities in the North that make it difficult for them to recapture uh, slaves who escape and go North to freedom, so it's freedom seekers. And there's a growing sense that uh, there is not the kind of support that the South would like in the rest of the nation to protect what they would say is their property. And their belief is that the Constitution, one of the things that it also does is to ensure the protection of people's property. And that what the Underground Railroad is doing is, in fact, overlooking and disregarding that right that people should have and not allowing them to secure their property. And you can see this issue cropping up in many of the state legislatures in the South and among the politicians in Washington, D.C. from the South as they talk about the fugitive slave law and they talk about what they think is this terrible activity of the Underground Railroad. So that if you are, are thinking about this coming of the Civil War, and if we see slavery as a key component of the coming of that war and why the war is being fought, then what the Underground Railroad represents, in its essence, is an attack upon the institution of slavery to make it less secure for those who believe in that system and to make them feel um, less confident about its future. And I think this is an important contributor to the sense of ill-ease that those in the South have about their further connection with the nation. They're worried that there's not going to be the laws in place, the support in place to protect them when uh, slaves run away. And if that continues to go forward, that there could, this uh, steady loss of individuals could turn into a stampede and in the end undermine all the things that they consider to be so important. So given that, I think it is one of the reasons why the South very actively looks at the possibility of breaking away from the Union because they believe that the very source of their wealth, the very source of their economic well-being, is under attack. When you're thinking about interpreting this piece of history in the present day, can you talk a little bit about the challenges that you and your colleagues at the Smithsonian and the Underground Railroad Freedom Center have faced in finding written materials or material culture to create the presentation in a museum setting and, and bring this history to the present day so people will understand it? Uh, yes, I mean, you're right. Trying to find written documentation and material culture to tell the story of the Underground Railroad is quite a challenge for uh, those of us in public history and museums because, uh, as we talked about, the secretive nature of the um, system uh, a part of it is that people did not want to maintain very much in the way of records because, especially after the passage of the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850, those records could be used against you to prosecute you in court. So that you have a number of instances where you read about individuals who said that once that law is passed, the records they had kept, they destroyed. So they couldn't uh, be traced. I mean, the fact that William still kept his records was amazing because it put him in great jeopardy. So that uh, given this fact, the challenge is to think about how do we recreate and give people a sense of this activity in a way that they can see and feel. I think that um, uh, one of the things that we were able to do at the uh, Freedom Center in, in Cincinnati was to acquire a building that was a slave pen. And it was a place that was used by a slave trader to hold slaves before they were sent further south. It's a very powerful illustration of the institution of slavery and the fact that there were individuals who were able to escape 
uh, uh, slavery um, under this guy's control. There's interesting stories about people running away. So I think that's a very visible uh, illustration of it. I think the other thing we have to do is to find artifacts that help to sort of reflect the operation in an indirect way. One of the things we were able to do is to find a uh, pew from the uh, from Mother Bethel African, uh, African Methodist Episcopal Church in Philadelphia, which had its founding in part helping uh, uh, runaways and others who came to Philadelphia looking for help. So it begins to illustrate uh, these kinds of issues. But overall, I think uh, finding specific material culture is very difficult to do. I think instead what you ha one has to try and do is to capture the feeling of that operation to illustrate the dangers that go with it to maybe recreate some of the kind of hiding places that people had uh, in their homes. And I think the other way you do that is you may not bring it to the museum itself or to the institution where you're working, but there is a, uh, there are a number of structures and buildings around the nation that have been certified as Underground Railroad sites. And so what you also try to do is to get people to go to those sites to see what went on in place and then learn more about it in that way. So one of the things that we did in Cincinnati was that Ripley, Ohio, was a very important locus for the Underground Railroad along the Ohio River Valley. And uh, Reverend John uh, Rankin, a Presbyterian minister, was a key player in that, and his home still exists. So we worked very hard to try to get people to go there and to see his house, but also to go see the house of John Parker, an African-American who was also active in the Underground Railroad in Ripley, whose home is there as well. So our task is not only just to have the material culture in our structures, but to find ways to encourage people to go out around the country and to look at these places where these activities took place in situ. So I think it's that balancing act that we have to create in this, in this work that uh, highlights the history, gets people excited about the history in the places where we're telling the story, but also encourages them to actually get out and come in contact with the real places where these activities occurred. Can you talk a little bit more about how you certify a, a place that you, how do you verify that Underground Railroad activity took place there? Well, uh, fortunately, uh, the National Park Service has created a Network to Freedom operation who has taken on the task of certifying places as authentic uh, uh, locations in the Underground Railroad. And essentially what they will try to do is to look at the records that people can put forth to verify the fact that Underground Railroad activities took place there. They will look at uh, newspaper articles from the time. They will look at documents. They'll look at the structure. They'll look at how active the Underground Railroad was in that region to begin to find threads of information, as a good historian would, that lead them to the conclusion that this very this uh, place was, in fact, an Underground Railroad site, and then they will certify it. It's a very arduous process. The sites that apply have to provide a lot of data and a lot of information, and not every site that applies is actually certified. But I think it is important to make sure that we can uh, undergird their assertions with good history and good historical data so that we can verify the operation. I think part of the, the challenge of the Underground Railroad is that over time, different historians have either argued that it really didn't exist, it's not an important part of the history, or that it was mostly made up. And I think that uh, off, 
what we are trying to do now, those of us interested in this history, is to provide more and more hard data to illustrate that, that in fact, that in fact this is a network that did exist and that it did have an important impact upon those who were seeking freedom as well as the course of this nation's connection with the institution of slavery. In your work with this material, um, with the data as well as the artifacts, can you remember a point in time when you uh, came across something that just knocked your socks off and you were, you were so delighted to find or that you saw resonate so much with a museum audience once you were able to put it on display or talk about it in, a, in an exhibit setting? Well, I think for me, the slave pen that was discovered uh, outside of Cincinnati was mm -hmm. a very powerful object. It was a building that went back to the 19th century. It had been preserved only because uh, later on in its life it had been covered over by a barn with a tin roof so that the tin roof kept the water off and kept the structure in place. And so that we were able to actually uh, dismantle it and then bring it and set it up in its full glory in the Freedom Center. It, it is a central artifact in that building. And I think that when you talk about the institution of slavery, when you talk about the fears and the hopes and the dreams of those who are enslaved, when you go into that building, you feel it. You can feel their presence and you can feel, I think, their anxiety and all the emotions they must have been going through and why escaping was such a powerful uh, interest for so many people because the life that they live, they live very difficult and very challenging. So if I had to think of any particular object, that's probably the one that strikes me the most in terms of its power and its ability to talk about the institution of slavery and about the importance of freedom. As you continue to travel and talk about this movement, are there misconceptions that you continue to encounter? I think uh, those misconceptions are always there, and probably the most obvious one is when you talk about Underground Railroad, uh, many people say, well, is this actually a railroad that ran underground like a subway? And so part of it is beginning to explain the uh, nomenclature connected with it and explain actually how this system operated and worked so that people get, began to begin to understand it in its reality rather than how they might imagine it in their own minds. And I think the other challenge often is just, uh, uh, it's interesting, that they say that at the time of the operation of the Underground Railroad, people were real, a little reticent to admit their connection to that network because it was dangerous and it was illegal and you could wind up in a lot of trouble. But it's in subsequent years, I think people like the idea of believing that their relatives and ancestors were part of this cause to fight against slavery. And so you have uh, lots of people who will talk about having homes that have uh, hidden doors in it, have attics that have a hidden space in it, and believe that this is part of the Underground Railroad. So part of it is always talking to people uh, about that and trying to get into the specifics to have them understand that just because you have a secret room in the house or a door that leads to a, a secret corner, that doesn't mean that it was part of the Underground Railroad. So it's, it's nice to know that people are excited about it and want to be connected to it, but I think it is the challenge of us as, as historians, as always, is to make sure there's a good factual basis for the assertions that are made. So that often it is having that kind of a conversation that's an important part of uh, the, the work that I do. Hopefully this podcast will help people who have questions about it as well. Um, Hope so. That's very interesting, the, the way this works out. In closing, I, I want to ask you a little bit about your current research on, on 20th century African-American history. 
Can you comment on, on how your current research might be informed by your insights into the 19th century and, and the Underground Railroad and the kinds of people and networks involved in that? Uh, yes. Well, actually, the work that I'm doing now is, is still back in the 19th century. It seems oh. if I'm trained as a 20th century historian, I'm being pulled back to the 19th century. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, doing uh, actually two projects that I'm uh, working with now. One is some work with the slave narratives and beginning to actually read through them uh, and specifically to understand what were the reactions and the feelings of those who were enslaved, both while they were enslaved, but also through emancipation. And I think what that has done for me is to just sharpen my understanding of why the Underground Railroad was so important and how the institution of slavery uh, worked in order to try to uh, beat down, I think, the aspirations and the hopes and dreams of those individuals. But the other project that's a more long-term project that I, I really want to work on is trying to look deeper into the life of William Still. There is no sort of full-length uh, biography of William Still. There are some wonderful uh, shorter pieces, but I think he's an individual who warrants a deeper investigation of his life and his uh, impact, both as part of the Underground Railroad, but also as an active member of the African-American community in Philadelphia. So that uh, I seem to be entwined with slavery and the Underground Railroad in the 19th century, and uh, so that um, uh, all of them are working, I think, together to help me get a deeper and better sense of how things worked during this period of great turmoil in the nation. Thank you so much for being with us today, Spencer. We've been talking today with Spencer Crew of George Mason University as part of the OAH's Civil War Sesquicentennial podcast. Thank you again, Spencer. Thank you. It was enjoyable. <laughs>